Only let your conversation be as it becometh, the gospel of Christ. Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome. Uh, He is writing it in the year AD 62 or 63. The church at Philippi was the first church to be established by Paul on the continent of Europe. Now, uh, as is usually the case um, in the Bible, the uh, word conversation does not refer just to speech, it includes speech, uh, but it also refers to a person's conduct generally, uh, how one uh, converses with others in the world. And so here Paul is talking to the Philippian Christians about how they should be behaving. And it must be in accordance with the gospel of Christ. There is then a certain manner of behaviour which a Christian must exhibit, which is actually part and parcel of being one of Christ's disciples. This is what is meant by uh, conversation as becometh the gospel of Christ. That the Christian, by definition, is one who has been called to obedience and submission to God's commandments. Uh, This is just as important as having been forgiven and having been saved. Uh, A Christian's calling is to take up his cross, uh, to subdue the flesh and the power of the spirit and to lead a holy life. One cannot take the salvation uh, without a parallel resolve to pursue all holiness. The two go together. Those who have been saved from their sins must never think that they have a license to sin on the grounds that they are in Christ, they are not under the law, and God delights to be merciful. Such an attitude would be to abuse God's mercy, and such an attitude is, of course, openly condemned uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Romans 6, verse 1. Romans 6, verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So the believer is as a dead man concerning sin. The believer has been condemned and executed under God's law. His old sinful nature has been legally put to death. And as he believes in Christ, he has been raised up to new life, new resurrection life. So the old man 
has been condemned and executed. How then can those who by definition been raised up to new life live as if their old sinful natures had never been put to death? How can one who has been born again live as if his old nature had never been condemned. The believer must realise that sin is worthy of death, is worthy of eternal death. And so the pronouncement of God upon every sinner is condemned, worthy of death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Um, We are dead to sin. Sin has had such an effect on us that we are spiritually dead. We are dead to sin, dead on account of sin. Now, because of God's mercy in Christ, the penalty for sin has been carried out in the person of Christ, enabling the believer in him to be acquitted and and to lead a new risen life in the power of the Holy Spirit. God has saved us precisely in order that we might then honour him by the way that we live. That, That is the purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation is not just to get to heaven, forgetting about everything between conversion and heaven. The purpose of salvation is to create a holy people. And so the Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. Ye are a chosen generation, addressing believers, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, distinctive, uniquely belonging to God. That's what peculiar means. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. We are saved then in order to be holy and in order to serve Christ. We are not simply saved to get to heaven, ignoring the concept of service and the concept of holiness. And so Paul says this in Romans 8 verse 12. We are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, the old nature, ye shall live. So there in Romans 8, Paul is saying that the Christian is not a debtor to the flesh, he has no obligations to his old sinful nature, but he is a debtor 
to the Holy Spirit who has given him a new nature. So every born-again Christian is under an obligation to the Holy Spirit to lead a new life, a holy life. Every believer is under an obligation to bear the fruits of the Spirit. And we're talking here about genuine, heartfelt holiness. We're not talking about showy acts of piety, people showing off their religiosity to others. No, we're talking about genuine holiness, commandment keeping, which comes from the heart. And so each believer is under an obligation to engage in conduct which becomes the gospel, which is fitting to the gospel. We must engage in behaviour which befits our high calling as those who bear the name of Jesus Christ, who was without sin. And so writing to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. So we have to behave in a manner worthy of our calling, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So notice there how in Ephesians 4, Paul refers to the same concept. He is talking about becoming conduct or conversation. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. So there is a type of behaviour which is fitting for one who bears the name of Christ. Behaviour which is worthy of our high calling. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. There's a single Greek word behind the phrase, let your conversation be. Uh, It is literally, be a citizen, or live as a good citizen. The word comes from the same root, from which we get our English word, politics. Philippi had a special political status. It was not simply a subjugated corner of a massive empire, but it was a self-governing Roman colony, being run on similar lines to an Italian city under the Roman Empire. And so the citizens of Philippi were Roman citizens with special privileges. And they were proud of this. So using the analogy of proud, law-abiding citizens of an earthly kingdom, Paul exhorts the Philippians 
to be upright citizens of the kingdom of God. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye are doing the following things, which we shall consider. Uh, notice how verse 27 uh, begins with the word only. Uh, this is a means of emphasis. Whatever you do, make sure you do this. Because a Christian who is not leading a holy life is ruining his Christian witness. And so Paul is putting emphasis upon this. He does not know what will be the outcome of his own imprisonment. But whether he is able to visit the Philippians or not, may they make the pursuit of conduct which becomes the gospel their absolute priority. So he says that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So the Philippians must unite around the revealed truth of the gospel, as delivered by Paul and the other apostles. They must do all that they can to avoid divisions, remembering that they are members of one body. Now, it's a plain fact of life that even born-again believers can always find something to disagree about. But believers are exhorted to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so we must remember that we are members of the one body and we have a common enemy. When you've got soldiers fighting alongside each other against a powerful enemy, it, it brings them ever closer, doesn't it, in, in, into a, a bond of union and fellowship. Now, if it's a case of defending the truth against obvious error, of course, division is necessary. But what Christians must do at all costs is avoid divisions over secondary issues. And they must certainly avoid divisions over personalities. We are called to avoid divisions over a sinful failure to love one another as we ought to love one another. And of course, even though we are born again, we still have to deal with the flesh. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So uh, the old nature is still there. 
So we have to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so we must pursue unity as an absolute priority because the easiest way for the devil to destroy the work of a church is to make the brethren disunited. So let us pray for our precious unity all the time. It's absolutely vital because the devil would love to disrupt our unity because when we are unified, we are powerful and can do great things for the Lord. Uh, Writing to the Corinthians, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So sadly, the Corinthian church was much weakened by avoidable dissension and conflict. And so Paul rebuked the Corinthians for fragmenting into factions. As we have said, Christians are in a battle. Think of soldiers defending their lines against a fierce attack. What hope would they have of repulsing the enemy if they were fighting also amongst themselves? Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And stand fast in one spirit. And notice how there Paul speaks of defending the gospel. It's very doctrines. It's key teachings. Because there are always going to be attacks on the integrity of the gospel. Paul is having to endure uh, attacks on the gospel uh, from his fellow Jews, from idolatrous Gentiles, and also from false teachers within the church itself. Behaviour which becomes the gospel is behaviour which defends the gospel in its true meaning. So if we see the gospel being corrupted, we have to fight that. If we see the gospel of salvation being modified into the gospel of saving the planet from climate change, we must fight that. There are facts related to the gospel, such as the nature of our Lord's person, 
his work of redemption through an act of penal substitution. These are simply non-negotiable teachings. Whatever else you do, says Paul, defend the truth. The call to unity, which we have in this verse, has nothing to do with embracing error for the sake of peace. We must never tolerate deviations from scripture for the sake of institutional unity. And this tragically has been the approach of the ecumenical movement over many decades. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 19, Paul actually says that in some instances, division is necessary when it's a matter of the truth. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. There must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. The Greek word rendered heresies there means any kind of division or faction. So in some contexts, divisions are necessary because they sort out the wheat from the chaff. They sort out the true from the false. Believers must never let down their God because the truth is always going to be under attack. And so we are called to fight for biblical truth because it will always be under attack. And so in the epistle of Jude, we read these words. Uh, Jude, verse 3. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares. Where are they crept in? Into the churches. Who were before of old ordained, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is unbridled behaviour. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So, even right early on in New Testament times, false teachers were creeping into the churches and undermining the gospel. Attacking the doctrine of our Lord's deity. Or teaching that God's grace gives a license to sin. And that latter error is particularly prevalent in our own day. Oh, God is all inclusive, so he will judge no one. That's an absolute lie. But you hear it in churches. Listen to the strength of Paul's words here in Philippians Chapter 3 and verse 2, just a little further on here. Philippians 3, verse 2. He says, Beware of dogs, 
Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. And so there was a problem of false teachers at Philippi. And notice that word concision. It's a word related to the act of circumcision. And these false teachers were what are called Judaizers. They claimed to follow Jesus Christ. But they were insisting that every true Christian had to be circumcised in order to follow Christ. In order to be saved. And that they also had to carry on observing the other Mosaic rites and ceremonies. Now this was an assault upon the gospel. We are saved by faith alone. You don't have to add anything to it. You don't have to add a ceremony to it. You don't have to say, well, you can only be a Christian if you're also circumcised. But that is what was happening. And so Paul says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision." And so doctrinal truth must be maintained. But as we've already mentioned, it is also vital to maintain a unity amongst the brethren. It must be a unity, though, based on the truth. And and this is where there is need for discernment and wisdom amongst Christians. In deciding what are the fundamental essential issues and what are secondary issues. We don't divide on the secondary issues. We could divide on baptism. But what's the point? Charles Spurgeon believed in believers' baptism by immersion. John Wesley and George Whitfield uh, were quite happy on the grounds of scripture to baptise the children of believers. Now, we don't divide them and say that they preach a different gospel. We respect the convictions of the different groups and and they all do it out of uh, a love for the word. Let's not divide on issues like that. But we must divide where fundamental truth is at stake. We must avoid division when it's a matter of issues which are not central to the integrity of the gospel. Uh, Another issue where it is pointless dividing is, is over church government. Should all churches be independent? Uh, or, Or should there be oversight of groups of churches? And that is an issue which has often divided Christian people. And and fine Bible-believing people can often be at variance with one another. Another area where we should not divide is over the last things. It's one of the ways of referring to it. What happens at the end? The precise details of the events which are going to happen prior to our Lord's return. Now, Christians have all kinds of views on this. And there are all kinds of nuances about last day's 
teachings. We should not divide on these things. But the important thing is the Lord Jesus Christ is returning as judge. That's fundamental. That's paramount. We do not. We must assert that with all of our hearts. And so we need the wisdom to discern what is fundamental and what is secondary. Verse 28. In nothing be terrified by your adversaries. Conduct which becomes the gospel includes standing up to the enemies of the gospel. It means not being intimidated by the enemies of the gospel. So in our contemporary context, not being terrified by our adversaries means standing up to the spirit of the age in which we live. Because it's creating enormous pressure upon everyone to conform to a certain way of thinking. And the media is constantly at work to make us think in a certain way. And as Christians, we've got to be alert to that. And so we have to stand up to the forces of militant secularism. We've got to stand up to the all-powerful LGBT lobby to which the government and the media have totally capitulated. We must stand up to the notion that all religions are equally valid and have something to offer and they have different paths to God, but it's all the ultimate same objective. We must stand up to that horrid error. We must stand up to the new religion of the worship of Mother Earth, by means of climate change hysteria. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 7, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee, to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And so there, Jeremiah is specifically told not to be afraid of the faces of the majority of his countrymen who will be hostile towards him. And we must never forget, as Bible-believing Christians, that the majority of people in our society are totally opposed to what we believe and what we stand for. We are never going to be everybody's friend and we must never pursue that. Jeremiah would have to face much hostility because he proclaimed a non-user-friendly message because he spoke of coming judgment. Be not afraid of their faces, he was told. This is what our Lord told his disciples in John 16, verse 33. John 16, verse 33. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, 
I have overcome the world. The Lord Jesus Christ warned the disciples to expect opposition and not to be overwhelmed by it. And so, in this verse 28, Paul says, In nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that of God. Now, the word which there, in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which, which refers to the Philippians standing fast, striving and not being terrified. If the Philippians are not intimidated and terrified by the world, that is an evident token or proof that their enemies will indeed come under God's judgment. The fact that God is giving them strength against their enemies is the sign that their enemies will fall under God's hand. Whilst it is also a sign, on the other hand, that they are saved and are God's own protected people. So if we stand fast under all the world's assaults against us, that is an evident token, says Paul here, that we are saved and that the world is lost. And notice that phrase also at the end of verse 28, and that of God. The Philippians' courage and their being sustained in the midst of much opposition, it's the gift of God to them. Their willingness to stand up against the enemy is God's gift to them. Our Lord said this regarding the world's opposition in Matthew 5 and verse 11. Matthew 5 verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So there our Lord explains that those who endure in the midst of the world's opposition are in the sphere of God's special blessing. And the way things are today in contemporary Britain, it's not just preachers who are called into this battle to stand up and fight the enemy, of course. It's upon every single ordinary believer. And, and so a parent, for example, might find his children being taught undesirable material in the schools. This is an opportunity to stand up for Christ against the enemy. It won't be easy, but again, this is where the unity of the body comes in 
Uh, we all derive strength from one another. And Paul goes on and says in verse 29 here, to the Philippians, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So conduct which becomes the gospel includes being persecuted for Christ's sake. To follow Christ means enduring the same hostility which he endured. And so we must banish all ideas of Christians being those nice people down the road who occasionally have a a jumble sale and a coffee morning. No, we're not like that. We are the world's enemies. They can't stand us. John 15, verse 19. The Lord says to his disciples, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. A man yesterday in Slough came up to me and he said, where is the evidence for Jesus Christ? There just isn't any. It's a fairy tale. And then he said this, he said, I hate you for what you believe. That's what he said. He hated us because we were proclaiming Christ. Remember the word that I said unto you, John 15, 20. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The Apostle Peter tells those who are undergoing persecution for Christ's sake, he tells them this in in 1 Peter 4 and verse 13. Rejoice! Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Following powerful preaching and healing, we read of the apostles being apprehended by the authorities in Acts chapter 5. You see, Society around us, the powers that be, have never liked the preaching of the true gospel. We must never think that the world out there is our friend. It is not. We must never think that the politicians are our friend. They are not. Acts 5, verse 17. Then the high priest rose up and all they that were with him and were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth. So there was a miraculous escape from prison. But following that, the apostles were again apprehended by the authorities. And they were brought before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. So we read further on in Acts 5, Acts 5 
Verse 40. When they, the council, had called the apostles and beaten them, physically beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So the apostles were physically beaten and were commanded never to preach again as they had been preaching. They rejoiced at the honour of suffering in that way. And so Paul says in verse 30 here, having the same conflict which ye saw in me and now here to be in me. Now, Paul himself, of course, is speaking as one who is persecuted. He, he's writing from prison. He had endured similar grievous persecution as the Philippians are going through. The Philippians, as they suffer, are engaged in the same battle as Paul and indeed as the Lord himself. So he speaks in verse 30 about the same conflict. Just as the Lord himself endured the world's hostility, so will those who follow him. Now, standing firm when this hostility comes is conduct which becomes the gospel. Verse 27. Let's go back in conclusion to verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. There is a mode of behaviour which becomes or which is befitting the Christian gospel. It is keeping, by God's grace, the commandments of God. If we are to be faithful to our gospel profession, then we must ensure that the following four aspects of conduct are attended to. Firstly, we must resolve to put off all sin. Secondly, we must resolve to maintain at all costs the unity of the brethren. Thirdly, we must resolve to strive for the truth and never compromise on fundamental, essential truth. And finally, we are called to stand fast in the face of the world's opposition and persecution. So may the Lord help each one of us to display that necessary behaviour which is required of all those who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.